Hello, this is Stephanie. And this is Brian. Welcome to our podcast, The Making and the Remaking of a Codependent Mind. In our first two episodes, we discussed the group of behaviors that make up codependency and how those behaviors can be formed as responses to traumatic experiences. In my case, from a five-year abusive relationship with a friend who we called G. In this episode, we're going to explore the phenomena of trauma bonding, which is a dangerous relationship dynamic that people with codependent behaviors resulting from unhealed trauma are vulnerable to. Occasionally, you'll hear the phrase trauma bonding to describe a relationship that's formed between two or more people who experience trauma together. That's not actually the, I guess, technical definition of that phrase. The definition that we're using and that you'll see in kind of trauma literature, that it's a term for when a person is being abused and that person becomes inadvertently tied emotionally to their abuser. So it's very similar to what we've, uh, if you've heard about Stockholm Syndrome, where um, hostages become kind of bonded to their captors. (laughs) And they wind up defending them. Defending them or participating in them. There's a couple of pretty famous cases about that. So that's the dynamic we're going to explore. When we're talking about trauma bonding, for it to form, there needs to be two key ingredients in place. One's a power imbalance, right? So this is the abuser and the abusee. Um, And then the abuse is almost always intermittent. Um, it's not constant. If the abuse was constant, I don't think a person would really survive that. And I don't think a relationship would survive if it was actually constant. So it's intermittent. Um, you're abused one minute and the next minute you, you, you're fine. You're safe. You're even maybe loved and cared for and given affection. Right. So the trauma bonding phenomenon is important because people who are in abusive relationships often get questioned as to why they don't leave or why do they stay. One answer is often, I was afraid to leave, especially if people are physically threatened. Which actually, if you go back to my first relationship that caused the trauma, that's more or less the reason why I didn't leave that friend. I was afraid. You were physically afraid for your life. But then you also had adult relationships, um, intimate relationships, that were abusive, not physically abusive. So you weren't like you were as a, as, as a child, literally physically afraid for your life. And so this is a question that you've asked yourself and been asked by other people. Why did you stay in those relationships? And the trauma bond seems to be the answer. Right. That's where the trauma bonding comes in. It's, a, it's actually very complex when you break down all the various pieces that can go into a trauma bond. It's, it's, not, as, it's not as simple as, as, why are you with this person? They've done X, Y, and Z. Like, why would anybody stay with a person that has done this? Well, because of all these emotional hoops that the abusee is jumping through to survive the situation that draw upon very often trauma that they experienced in childhood or, or before. So this is the what you mentioned earlier, this kind of where trauma goes. If, it, if it's not healed, it goes into other relationships where it be- becomes bigger or more entrenched, Right. unfortunately. I mean, someone can conform a trauma bond to someone, and this is the first time they, they're experiencing trauma. But in my particular case, 
I experienced the trauma very early in life. It carried forward throughout the next 40 years of my life. <laughs> so there were really two relationships in your adult life, intimate relationships, romantic partners, that this trauma bond came into play. Could you describe both of those relationships? Sure. So I had several friendships over the years after the days of G that were not good either, but I didn't necessarily get bonded to them. It was when I, when these two romantic partnerships happened that I really, really formed deep trauma bonds. Um, the, and both the, the two relationships were back to back over the course of 12 years. The first of these two relationships lasted eight years. I'll call the person R. So this person was an abusive narcissist. Uh, actually, both of them were narcissists, but I'll get to the, to the details of each. The first partner was a pretty successful narcissist in that uh, she was able to kind of build a good list of people that supported her narcissism. Projected a good image into the world. Looking back now, and we'll, we'll go into detail about narcissism in the next episode, so I won't go into too much detail now on that, but her abuse was narcissistic abuse. And there was gaslighting, very heavy gaslighting. And the, the core of that relationship was I was very early on led to believe things about myself, bad things about myself. So constantly undermined my, my self-esteem. Everything about myself was called into question, like absolutely everything. And let's just mention gaslighting is a pretty common term now, social media and other places, but right. in case someone hasn't heard that term before, it indicates a partner attempting not just to lie to you, but to make you believe that you're crazy. So, you know, for instance, if someone's cheating on you and you question them, they don't just deny it. They say like, what, well, you're paranoid, you're crazy. This, yeah. is, this is all your fault. So it's a deflection, it's a deflection mechanism. And it's a very common thing for narcissists to use because one of the, the key personality traits of a narcissist is not accepting responsibility for their own actions. So it's a very common thing to just, no matter what happens, any sort of negative thing in a relationship, it's going to be the abusee's fault, basically. Um, Including that the, the abusee's being abused. Right. Yes. You're, you're not allowed to say that it's abused. You're not allowed to question your treatment. Right. There's a reason why this is being done. It's my fault. I need to figure out how to satisfy the situation, make this person feel loved and safe at the expense of my own well-being, which is the codependency, as we were talking about. So this was the first time where I was really playing out all of these behavior, all of the maladaptive behavior traits that I learned from the days of G that I just kind of carried on unhealed over the years between G and this first romantic relationship. And now they were there full force supporting this person who was abusing me and undermining myself. So that was the first one that lasted eight years and it ended not by my doing. And so I left that relationship feeling still small and very low self-esteem, lower than I ever did before the relationship. And I went right into another relationship that lasted four years with another abusive narcissist. This one was not as successful. This person was more obviously not socially or emotionally 
successful. People would see right away that this person was flawed severely. And she rubbed a lot of people the wrong way and uh, employed all kinds of, of blatant tactics to try to just build herself up. and To make... get narcissistic attention. Yeah. And so, you know, it was it was a lot more difficult for me to defend this person. But I was starting at a very low place. Mm-hmm. And this person showered me with love bombing, which actually happened in both relationships. That's typically how a narcissist codependent relationship would work. Well, again, we'll get into some more details on that. But I got hooked in. Very... So it didn't start with abuse. Right. Or it started at least with intermit- the intermittent abuse you were talking about. Yeah, so yeah. heavy love, love bombing off the top. And then... Yeah, with both of them, they started with heavy love bombing, but very quickly turned into abuse. I guess we should mention, too, the love bombing, which is another phrase that you'll see all over yes, exactly. social media. But love bombing is just like this overwhelming attention and flattery and compliments and, and gifts. And, and, and I've never felt like this way before. You're, you're so handsome. You're so... Yeah, you're the best at this. You're amazing. Yeah, you're, I can't yeah. believe I met you. And, you know, this that'll feel good to anyone, of course, to, to be complimented. But for a person, a codependent person that has all these things we've talked about in the previous episodes where it's lack of agency, a lack of identity. And then especially when I started the second relationship between the two, completely low self-esteem, like about as low as it gets. And so being love bombed when you have no self-esteem yeah. is tough to yeah. to get through, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, Although you, you said it wasn't also disorienting, which it's supposed to be, right? Right. It, 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 it didn't particularly feel completely authentic either yes exactly i do remember actually thinking that in both cases that's it's it seemed extreme Mm -hmm. it's it seemed exaggerated Mm -hmm. um but it was never enough for me to you know everyone sees red flags some Mm -hmm. people deal with them differently than others and for a codependent person with no boundaries and difficulty in saying no and a person with codependency meeting a narcissist again as we'll get into the next episode is very dangerous combination so the first one are yeah. So the, Jay was abusive in a different way. Yeah. The so second Jay, one, what we call Jay. Yeah. The second one we'll call Jay uh, was abusive in more of a uh, explosive, coercive, violent language. These moments of extreme anger and, and shouting and things like that. And then there would never be any resolution to those episodes. The resolution I found over the years was basically just go into a turtle shell until it ended. And then, and then it just went away. And then the person, this J person, was no longer yelling. So therefore, I was safe. Oh, I'm no longer being yelled at. But there's also manipulation. And, yeah. And right. So then, when the yelling wasn't happening, then there was kind of this this pendulum swing to sympathy, like searching for sympathy and like and searching for being cared for, but in an extreme way, like not where you're just. Everyone wants to care for their partner, you know, but this was this was like this kind of extreme uh, seeking sympathy where it was an element of the narcissist. One minute I'm going, okay, I'm being told here how to take care of this person. And buried within the, the searching for sympathy thing would be excuses for the explosive, explosive behavior. So it'd be like, I'm only doing that because I feel physically ill, you know, so you need to figure out how to help me not feel physically ill, or it's going to keep happening. Mm-hmm. The abuse is going to keep happening. Yeah. So it's it's this person was guiding me into what I needed to do to make the relationship fine. Well, that was true as well. You've said about 
the first relationship with R. Yes. She would be very explicit about what you needed to do for her. Yes. In ex- her life. Exactly. Right. So that that R was more, I needed to do all kinds of things to myself. I needed to change basically everything about myself. I, I, I didn't have enough confidence. I didn't have enough friends. I didn't. You weren't masculine enough. I wasn't masculine enough. That was a huge one. Yeah. And with all that came with that, you couldn't fix things. Yeah, right. I, so I wasn't a man, manly man enough. Even though, you know, I was the person I was the entire relationship, even from day one. So, but it was just these things became this never ending quest uh, to have me be more to satisfy the narcissism. I, I became a, t- a symbol for her when we went out in public, too. So she was very good at not abusing me in public. So it was clear that there was, you know, some consciousness there to sure. it. You she know? knew how to control. Yeah. So we'd be out in public and then, but, I, you know, I very quickly caught into the fact that she was rating my performance the entire time we were out in public. And then as soon as we got back into closed doors, she would go off <laughs> on the uh, abuse. Um, and sometimes it was severe. I mean, really, really awful stuff that, you know, things that like... Words, if, words that we don't even want to yeah, say. Yeah, words that we don't want to say here because they're just utterly offensive words that are offensive to everyone, mm-hmm. <laughs> except for people that use them. I think even to people that use them. <laughs> so two relationships, both involving regular abuse, insults, manipulation, guilting, explosive anger to control behaviors. So why did you stay? Right. Well, so this is where the trauma bond comes in, right? What we talked about with, uh, obviously, there was the power imbalance, right? They had all the control in the relationship, both of these women. I gave it to them right from the start. I mean... Right. So we should say, you know, the, the question is is particularly compelling because you had you had all the financial resources. Yeah, sure. Theoretically, you had the physical, more physical strength. Mm-hmm. I feel like I was more intelligent than both of them, too. Right. But, yeah, so you had intellectual resources they didn't have. You had financial resources. You had physical resources. The first marriage, R, you indicated she was successful socially, but she didn't have a successful family life. You had family resources. Mm-hmm. And in the second one, you had social resources as well. Right. In that very few people liked her. <laughs> yeah. Jay and people generally liked you. Yeah. So, so the power that they had w- w- was not on those lines. Right. So this is what makes it difficult for people on the outside. You know, again, like you were saying, it when people on the outside, even myself now looking back, it just mm-hmm. seems insane. It does. It seems insane to stay with someone that's doing the types of things that these two women did. But so, again, there was this power imbalance, as, we have, as I've explained. I really quickly got myself into a position where I felt no power at all. I felt as though I needed to do things for these other people. It didn't matter how they treated me at all. I, In fact, I did things to make sure they were comfortable so that they wouldn't continue to abuse me. It was, it was basically just this cycle of what do I need to do to make sure I don't get abused. But then the second element, the intermittent abuse, of course, yes, that's that was always there. So when, when the abuse wasn't happening... It's like, wow, here we go. I'm feeling good. Uh, Things are going fine here, you know. And especially if it was a long period of uh, between abuse, you know. And even if you didn't, you didn't have to even feel that good. It's right. So you don't have to be like joyful or happy. They don't necessarily even need to be showering you with affection. Yeah. Because the difference between what you felt, the fear and the shame that you were feeling when they were abusing you, the difference between that feeling 
And even if it just felt, yeah, this is okay. Yeah. That was so extreme. Yeah. That really reinforces the bond, like that swing. Right. Between those two extremes. Yeah. And so when, to go back to those, uh, primal urges though, the, the trauma responses that we talked about in the previous episode, during the, during the abuse, really the only mode that I would go into is freeze. I, I, I tried fight before it never worked all it did was escalate and i got shouted over and and then the the abuse got worse and so i tried that now and then it's just whatever my body felt i needed to do in the moment and it, but it always went it wound up with freeze oh it always ended with freeze right you if you would try flight then what would happen yeah if i if i tried flight if i say tried to leave the room I, I they would follow me so there was flight didn't work mm-hmm and then the one we're leaving out here is is the fawn. Where I used fawn was in between. The abuse would stop. The, the literal direct abuse would stop. And then there would be the periods in between. The periods in between is where I would do all the rest of the work. All the, all the emotional gymnastics and mental gymnastics, which is the fawning, right? So I need to figure out, okay, it's calm now. What do I need to do now to avoid the next episode? You know, so with each one, it was completely different tactics. Even though, like... Those whole, the whole overarching and trajectory of those two relationships were almost identical. The abuse style was different. And so I had all the stuff I learned from the G days that I tried and employed and, and it, and it worked to the extent of I'm surviving this. So I felt as though I, that's what I needed to do because that's what I learned. I learned that I just needed to survive these situations. I didn't have any sort of agency that would even come close to just telling me things like, this isn't right. Or even asking the question, why am I here? Should I be with this person? Is this a good relationship? I didn't ask myself those questions. So there were two instances where those questions were asked, though, in both of those relationships. From other people, you're saying? Right. Yes. For instance, you went to therapy with your first partner. Yes. I went to, I went to at least, I went to four different therapists. Yeah. But one of the therapists suggested that you separate for a period of time. Right. It was a couples therapist. And that you take that time possibly to see other people even. Right. And that seems to be a period where the trauma bond really came to the forefront because how did you use that time? Right. So what happened is we, we moved apart for three months. Um, we didn't actually make it the full three months, but yes, I was being told you should try this. You should try to separate yourself. You should try to find yourself, you know, just see who you are as a person separate from this person. I didn't do that. I couldn't bring myself to do that. I was so trauma bonded to this person that I was like, well, I'm going to work on myself, but it's for this other person. It's to make this relationship work because this is what I've been told all this time. I have to fix these problems. I have to become more masculine. I need to be more confident. So at that point, it it sounds like you had no other avenue towards a sense of self or self-esteem. Right. Except through that relationship. My, My entire thread, my entire existence became this person's gaslighting. All the things she was saying about me, I bought into, even though it seemed harsh the most I could do was was to say, oh, this person, she's just being a little harsh in the way she's delivering this stuff, but she's absolutely right. I I need to and be more saying, masculine. And she's saying I, it because she loves me. Yeah, she just wants she she just wants me to be be who I I you know I, she knows I can be, and and I just then we can have this relationship that she promises will be. Yeah, then everything wonderful. will be great, you know. And this person R didn't. I, as, as far as I could tell, she rarely abused other people, and she even told me. <laughs> Oddly enough, one of the red flags I ignored in the beginning, just like several others, was that this is how she behaved in every relationship she had ever been in, was 
she would abuse her partner. <laughs> so she, she wouldn't abuse when you say other people you meant. Ex- like except friends. For her, and, right. Except for her romantic partner. Right. So just she would use the romantic partner as the outlet for her narcissistic abuse, basically. It made her feel better about herself to abuse someone, so she chose her partner. So but at that point, she had the all really all the power, including the power to say what kind of person you were. So this idea of like build yourself outside of her. Yeah, there was no way I was going to do that. I mean, I I convinced myself I was doing that at times, you know, where it was like, well, this is all good stuff I should be working on anyway. Um, you know, of course, I should be a more confident person, you know. What I didn't realize, obviously, there's a lot of things I didn't realize at the time was I was feeling better when I was working on those things. But the reason I felt better is because I wasn't with the abuser. And we weren't even allowed to talk. We weren't supposed to talk that entire time. We weren't supposed to even email each other. She did every day. She found a way to reach out, a reason to reach out. And anyway, there's a long story with that. Yeah, the main point was that I never connected with any sort of agency. I never saw things for the reality. I I didn't call anything abuse, even though, oddly enough, that therapist, that, that couples therapist, actually used that word. She said, it sounds like you're being abusive to her. And then after that, it's like the subject completely died. And and now it it became completely about this thread, R's thread about me. All we need to do is figure out how to solve these confident problems and the masculinity problems and everything will be great. So not only did was I believing this stuff, I was bringing the, these threads to the therapists and saying, yes, these are what I see to be my problems. And I even would explain the G, friendship and stuff like that. But I would, I would explain it from an angle of that friendship gave me low self-esteem and it caused this and that. None of the things about codependency, no one picked up on that. No one picked up on the abuse that was happening, even though it was extremely blatant. Um, I didn't bring that to people, you know? I just, that's not how I spun the story. I spun her story. And people who are trauma bonded often, I think, don't do that. Because the shame of being abused just gets added to the abuse. Yeah. Not only you're being abused, you feel sh- you, you feel shame about it. So this becomes a mechanism where you almost start gaslighting yourself. Yeah. And and there's a term that that I think fits perfectly for this cognitive dissonance. And I think I'm sure we're going to talk about this a lot more in other episodes. There's this battle going on in my head where I know my body knows that I'm being abused, but I also know I can't do anything about it. Somehow I've convinced myself that I'm powerless, so I have to figure out a way to be okay with this abuse. Now I have to employ all these tactics to tell myself stories and tell other people stories about why this is all happening and why, why am I here? You know, I need, to, I need to convince people why I'm there, and I need to convince myself why I'm there. So the main stories in, the, in, the, in that case were, she's right about me, yep. she's saying this out of love, this is what you do in a relationship, Right. you try to make it work. I don't want to fail in this relationship. It was a marriage at that point. I don't want to fail in the marriage. The trauma bond mechanism had the effect of removing any sense of your own power or any sense of your own judgment and replacing her judgment and her and her with her judgment and her power. Again, there was no you independent of this relationship at that point. Right. Which is why the, the, the trauma bond is, is so intense. At that point, you did not have the capacity to imagine yourself outside of what she was telling you you are. Exactly. And so really, it just 
the two of us became one person, her, <laughs> right? So everywhere I went, I was bringing her story. So it was either her bringing the story to other people or it was me bringing her story to other people. What do I need to do to fix these problems? And what does she need to do to help me fix these problems? <laughs> so this played out in kind of a similar fashion in the second romantic relationship with, yes. with Jay. And in, in it got to the point where there was a kind of a period of separation and during that period, you started to talk to other people about what was happening in your relationship. Yeah. So I approached that one a little differently, too, because it, it it was almost as though I was more conscious of the abuse and more conscious of the fact that this person was obviously not a good person. The first relationship was more, I was more gaslit. The second one, I was complaining to people more about this person. I reach reaching out to people, whoever would listen and complain about all the things that this person did. I was not very accurate about it always, you know, but I just, all I would have to do is say a few facts here and there. And the people I were talking to, wow, that doesn't sound very good. That's, that's pretty crazy. You're like, what's wrong with that person? And why you, why you, what do you like about this person? Why are you with that person? If it ever got to that point, if it ever got to the point of questioning like that, that would trigger my my need to back off and tell a different story i would get flooded i would get afraid and and i would have to say things which i did on a regular basis like oh well i'm i'm just telling you the bad things here there's there's lots of good things too i I should focus on those i'm just being ungrateful and i think that's a common thing for abused people to to do also about the flooding and the kind of fear response where where's that coming from what's 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 the fear so I think the first thing that happens when I was confronted with realistic questions that actually made me realize what was going on, at least came close to making me realize it, I would feel shame instantly. And shame was always something I had a really hard time dealing with throughout my life. And I never saw it as shame. It just, I saw it as bad feelings. And we'll get into this in another episode, but I had to just get out of bad feelings as quickly as I possibly could. And shame is a big one for shame everyone. Shame is a tough one. Um, for a reason, I, I think, because if we're doing something that we're ashamed of, we need to stop doing that. Yeah. But when it becomes kind of misappropriated or yeah. misapplied. So in my case, I would feel this shame and then probably, what you, what I think it? my brain would go. The like, shame of what? The shame of like, yeah, you're right. Why am I putting up with this? Why am I with this person? This person did even one of these abusive things that this person did, which should be enough to end a relationship. So what does that say about me that I'm staying? Yeah. Or that I chose this person? Yeah. So now I'm feeling bad. Uh, now I'm basically conscious. A light has been shined on on what's going on. and A little light. Yeah. And it's a little light, except that it's I, I extinguish that light very, very quickly because I immediately feel the fact that I don't have control, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's like, well, I can't, I mean, I can't sit in this feeling, you know, I, I can't feel shame when I know I have no control. So I have to figure out how to get back to a place where, no, no, I I belong here. You know, I, so this makes sense, but the shame would lead to fear also. So it's like, if, if, if I'm faced with the possibility of having to confront the abuser, I already know how that goes. You know, I, I, I have a really hard time standing up to the abusers. I've tried the fight technique. So what I'm doing when this happens is I'm playing through a scenario in my head. Very, I'm, very quickly. Very quickly. Not really consciously. Yeah, not really consciously. You're playing through it in your body. 
Yes, exactly. Your body's, you know. There may be times where, where I, there, I mean, I can remember times where I did it. I actually played through a, a movie in my head of having a conversation. I think I did that a lot too. But yeah, a lot of times this would be a very quick subconscious process where I went from shame through fear of like, well, I can't, but there's nothing I can do about it. I can't confront this person. I can't leave this person. I can't do anything to rock the boat. I need to continue to appease this person. So, and then that backs, that backs to shame because you're like, yeah, so it goes back to shame. shame from being afraid. <laughs> yeah. So now I need to feel, so it's like, okay, I'm stuck with shame. I need to do, no, the relationship's fine. And then what's also going on in my head is, is yeah, I'm exaggerating every possible thing that can be considered good. Which could be just like riding a bike through the neighborhood or something like that. Something just super basic that I did with in this person's presence. I was like, well, that was good. So, yeah, no, we have good times. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a good relationship. Um, we have good conversations. Meaning, in, in the case of Jay, was just this person was just dumping, verbal dumping. Um, and I just sat there nodding. And there's a lot more we'll, we can get into later on with that. The, but with the narcissism, right? But... It, 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 I was fine when she was sitting there dumping because if it didn't, if, if it wasn't abusive dumping, then it's like, wow, we're having a good conversation. This person's talking and I'm nodding. Cool. This, this, this is a good relationship. I just want to mention the way that shame plays into the trauma bond. I read about that being an element in, in parental abuse as well, where the child abused, but one of the reasons that they get trauma bonded to their parents is it feels so shameful to not be loved by your mother or your father. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And so this was in some ways similar, even though it's not a mother. It feels shameful to not be loved yeah, right. by your romantic partner, to be treated by your romantic partner this, that way. Yeah. So you can, what you're saying is you would minimize the bad behavior. You would exaggerate anything that seemed to be legitimate behavior between romantic partners in order to avoid the shame. In order to avoid the fear of having to change the situation that you felt powerless in. And in order to satisfy the cognitive dissonance, which was always there, right? So at some kind of low level, it was always there. This is not right. This doesn't feel right. But I had to extinguish that. But I remember thinking back, now that I'm safe and doing all of this self-analysis, thinking back, I can clearly see the, the, the way I was feeling throughout those entire relationships. So even when I was feeling good, there was always this low-level feeling of, this is off, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And, but I could never explore that. So one of, one of, one of my problems, which is an, another thing we'll go into a lot more detail in another episode, but is this lack of big picture. I, 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 it was too dangerous for me to take a step back, really, at all and think about my entire life in an over, overall sort of way. I had to think of each individual action, um, I think one interesting way the trauma bond played out for you, and I, and I suspect it's very true for other people as well, is it's almost the worse the person is, the abuser is, the stronger the trauma bond is because of that shame-fear nexus. So the more abusive they are, the more work you have to do internally to get away from the shame of being with them. Right. It's, it takes a lot of emotional resources. Yes, yeah, so you're working. You work even harder. Yeah. To excuse the behavior. Yeah. To say, you know, to think and say and believe yourself nice things about them. It becomes a complete mission in life. Right. To get away from the shame, and then of course, the worse they are, 
the stronger the fear. Yeah. It's not a case of you would anticipate the bond being weaker the more horrible they are. It's actually the bond is stronger the more abusive someone is. Yeah, and and that that it makes the this whole idea of the intermittency of the abuse more uh, heightened, right? Yeah, the spikes. So and and there's physical chemical reactions in the brain that happen when that when that happens too. So it, there's a dopamine release that everyone gets dopamine releases and it's a feel good chemical that happens. And so when a person's being abused, it's you're full of fear. This is a mm-hmm. heightened. Oh my! Mm-hmm. I'm in mm-hmm. I'm in fight, flight, or freeze mode, and and I feel awful. I'm being attacked, and then it ends, and you're like, oh, oh man. Yeah, wow. I think there's some joke about what's great about an elephant stepping on your toe. It feels so good when they get off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. We've all kind of experienced that a little bit when you when you feel pain, and then. So getting this this dopamine release, this this extreme relief feeling that's actually a chemical feeling in the brain it's a false signal it's makes make me feel good mm-hmm. at a time when i should not be feeling good i should be feeling like holy sh- crap i just got dumped on i just got abused but i'm feeling happy because it's over and i'm going to carry that happiness and then carry it into stories you know here we go again with the the emotional gymnastics and, 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 and into how, what I can do to avoid the future abuse. And I wasn't emotionally intelligent to be able to s- distinguish what these fake signals of happiness were, you know? And so I think my brain would just grab those and go, oh yeah, I know there were moments that I felt good. I know there's been moments where we got along, I got along with this person and things were going well. And then even if I wasn't in a dopamine mode, I was just searching for some kind of something to hold on to, to feel safe. And what I had to find to feel safe was trying to make them feel safe at all costs. So it didn't matter what these people did. I became kind of, and we'll go into this more too, but I became kind of a co-narcissist in a way, you know. So the dopamine feeling, that physiological reaction to of relief really also might be accessible when they gave you affection or attention. And then it feels not just like happiness, but love. Right. It feels like you love this person because you're, that you, you crave their affection so much. When really it's about not wanting to be abused. The difference again yeah. between when they're abusive and when their affection is so, affection is so great. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this has been an especially difficult thing for me to stomach looking back on these relationships is that is this false feeling of love, you know, because I feel as though this was one of the elements that had to be there, right? So I had to convince myself that I was in love with these people. I, why else would I be there? And so I had to find evidence of that. So evidence was things like this, these moments of fake happiness or these moments of calm where I'm saying, oh, yes, this things are going well. Like I, I'm, I'm performing well here mm-hmm. is what really was happening. But you know, things are going well here, so it must be love. To go back to the phrase trauma bond, what is supposed to bond two people together in intimate relationships is things like mutual love, respect, care. But what bonded you to your two intimate partners, R and J, was the way their abusive behaviors triggered your childhood trauma and activated the codependent behaviors 
that you had formed to deal with that original trauma. Unfortunately, once those behaviors were activated, it became increasingly difficult for you to separate yourself from them. The, their abuse, you know, the shouting, the belittling, the shaming, the controlling, the manipulation just got worse over time as they realized that they could get away with it. And as it got worse, that prompted you to try even harder to placate, to reassure them, to respond kind of appropriately. Um, you would bind yourself even tighter to them in order to try and stop their abuse because you felt you couldn't get away. So the only thing you could do is get closer to them. I was almost in a permanent flight or fawn and freeze mode that whole time. It seems like all my resources were pretty much sucked up trying to manage those people. So they really became the most important people in my life because there wasn't really anything left to give to other people or even myself. Uh, the idea that I could just redirect those resources away from them and towards just getting out of those relationships or even just seeing there was a problem seemed unimaginable to me. Like, and we're going to talk more about those relationships, a little more specifics about them in the next episode on narcissism and give a more of a sense of what the abuse actually looked like. Because as you said earlier, the codependent narcissist connection is a particularly dangerous one. Um, well, that is for the codependent. <laughs> the narcissist can be pretty great for the narcissist. Right. So we're going to spend a whole episode exploring that dynamic. Um, we hope you will join us for that discussion. If you have any comments or questions or want to contribute your own stories, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram by searching Codependent Mind. Thank you.